of Westminster, a story for Christmas 2018. A single large bell hung high above the rafters of the Westminster Church. It had been placed near the apex of the steeple and had remained in that spot for over a century. It was installed as the building was first constructed and was rung as a part of the joyous celebration when the building was dedicated. It was decided by the elders of the church that the ringing of the bell should mark special days in the church calendar and special events that involved the life of the small community of Bradford, Massachusetts. The bell always rang in the new year. Members of the church climbed the wooden stairway that led to a landing where the rope attached to the bell could be reached. At the stroke of midnight, the bell would ring out the celebration of the new year. It also rang early on Christmas morning each year to announce the birth of the Savior. At Easter, it rang twice during Holy Week. It was slowly rung at 3 p.m. on Good Friday in a very solemn observance of the traditional moment of Christ's death on the cross, and then rung again with great enthusiasm at sunrise on Easter morning to announce the news of the resurrection. By common consent, the bell was also allowed to ring whenever members were wed in the church sanctuary. As the young walked down the front steps to start their new life together, the bells would gladly ring out the news of their wedding celebration. The bell also marked the celebration of both the ending of World War I and World War II and the Vietnam War. And on rare occasions, the bell rang to celebrate special community-wide celebrations, like the Bicentennial Celebration of 1976, or on the day when President Kennedy's motorcade passed through the town during his first year of office back in 1961. But for more than two decades, the bell had been silenced. Like the rest of the building, the bell had fallen into a state of disrepair. In the late 90s, a summer thunderstorm sent a bolt of lightning to earth, striking the steeple of the Westminster Church. Apparently, the searing heat of the lightning fused together some component of the bell. Maybe the clapper was stuck, or maybe the hinges that allowed the bell to swing back and forth had melded together. But whatever the reason, the old bell never rang again. And no one grieved its silence more than Calvin Wilson. The Wilson Foundry had existed since the turn of the previous century. It was established by Calvin's great-grandfather, Paul. Paul had served as an apprentice in some of the steel mills in the Midwest, and when he moved his young family to Bradford, he found some backers for his foundry and soon started producing metal parts and materials. They made a wide variety of objects, everything from ceremonial cannons to iron handrails to specialty pieces that were used in manufacturing machinery and even the information plates attached to historical markers. And yes, they had even tried their hand at making a few bronze bells. Bell casting was time-consuming, labor-intensive. The larger manufacturers, like the White Chapel Company in England, had produced a special formula for the bronze alloy, carefully measuring and mixing both tin and copper. If mixed precisely, the bronze would be sturdy and strong, and the tone of the bell would be well-tuned. If blended poorly, the bell would crack or the tone would be too sharp or too flat. Because the formula was a well-guarded secret, small foundries like the Wilson Foundry were left to a little trial and error in terms of casting a bell. They discovered that others could do it with greater precision and less expense, and so the Wilsons produced only a very limited number of bells. To cast a bell required two carefully designed clay molds, an inner and an outer mold, 
When placed together, a small space separated the two molds, and it was into that small space that the molten metal would be poured. After a few days of cooling, the inner and outer clay shells were removed, exposing the new bell. The bronze would be cleaned and polished, and any imperfections would be carefully burnished away. The bell was then tuned by shaving away small amounts of the inner side of the bell until the right pitch was achieved. The clapper also involved some skill and effort. Each clapper was made uniquely for each bell, ensuring that it hung precisely and struck the bell in just the right spot. Paul Wilson and his son Simon only produced a handful of bells that found their way across the region. Several were placed atop one-room school buildings, the others were placed in several churches of various denominations. One bell never made its way outside of the foundry. Never purchased, it sat in a corner of the old brick warehouse where it collected dust for many, many years. The golden sheen of the bronze bell had turned to faded green years earlier. When the dust and dirt were occasionally brushed away by someone's curious hand, the inscription could still be read. Manufactured by Paul and Simon Wilson. Bradford, Massachusetts, 1914 A.D. Calvin Wilson was the oldest grandson of Simon Wilson. Having grown up in Bradford, everyone assumed that Calvin would follow the family tradition of working in the foundry. And although he was considered a partial owner when his grandfather died, spending the rest of his life in Bradford was not high on his agenda. He went off to college, choosing Penn State to study business finance. He got a taste of life away from Bradford, and it was exciting. After college, he went on to do an MBA at Northwestern in accounting. It was there he met and married his bride, Sarah O'Sullivan, who had grown up just outside of Chicago. Calvin was hired by a very successful accounting firm in the heart of the city. He and Sarah bought a house outside the city and started their life together. Every morning, Sarah would drop him off at the train station, and Calvin would ride into town into his world of big city and bright lights. He loved the energy of the city. Often on weekends, rather than escaping to the suburbs as so many others did, Calvin and Sarah headed into the city to catch a Cubs game or to attend a concert or to take in a play. They knew a good life, a successful life, a busy life. But as the years passed, there was always a little tug in Calvin's heart to return to Bradford. For one thing, his parents were aging and began to develop some health problems. Each time Calvin went home to check on them, he found it a little harder to leave. Also, a lot of his friends from his early years still lived in the area. Others had returned home after a number of years of living away. Calvin missed the simplicity of life in Bradford. He missed the old Main Street quaint stores, the local festivals and celebrations. Because of his financial position, Calvin was able to retire at the age of 65 with more money than he could possibly spend. He and Sarah decided that it was time for a change and they agreed to move to Bradford. They bought a beautiful home in a newly developed subdivision and quickly settled into small town life. After a few months of adjusting to retirement, Calvin started immersing himself into the local community. Every morning, he drove into town and eased into Maddie's coffee and donut house. It didn't take long for him to become a regular and soon learn each patron's name. 
Barbara was the waitress whom Calvin had known since high school. After a few visits, she would simply ask when he walked in, the usual, and he would nod. And soon a cup of hot coffee would arrive with a plate of two eggs, bacon, and a biscuit. After breakfast, when the weather was nice, he would stroll up and down Main Street, stopping to shake a few hands or have a conversation with the various store owners, many of whom that he had known for years. From time to time, he also checked in on the foundry. One of his brothers, Joseph, had taken the lead of managing the old business. Calvin made the decision not to ever interfere, but to be, as best he could, a silent partial owner who kept his nose out of the business. Because the business had been such a part of his early years, he enjoyed a feeling of nostalgia when he walked into the offices. Careful to never overstay his welcome, he would enjoy a short conversation with his brother, and often the two of them would go out to lunch, but he never stayed long. He made it clear that his role was one of support and not supervision. Sarah also began to weave her way into the local circles of the community. She became active with the local library, joined a health club, and volunteered two days a week at the elementary school reading books to children. Though it had not been her childhood home, she quickly made friends and felt like a real member of the community. And of course, the decision about which church to attend soon bubbled to the surface. On the outskirts of town, a new non-denominational church was quickly growing. The church featured a very contemporary style of worship with lots of praise music, loud instruments, and a pastor who wore skinny jeans with no socks each Sunday. Many of the young families flocked to the new facility. Calvin and Sarah tried it out for a few weeks because it was really close to their home, but something about it didn't feel quite right. It was all just a little too modern, too loud, too casual. The older Westminster church seemed to be a much better fit. Both liked the traditional feel of worship, the old hymns and traditions. Calvin had grown up in that church, but decided that he was not going to insist that Sarah embrace it as her own. But when she came home one Sunday, announcing that she had been asked to teach in the children's department, he knew the matter was settled. They became faithful members, faithful contributors, and faithful servants to the missionary work of the church. In fact, Calvin went on two mission trips during the first summer they moved home. He helped with the construction of a small chapel in a tiny village in the Dominican Republic and gave out medical supplies in Haiti. It didn't take long for Calvin to find a position of leadership in the church. He was elected to the Board of Elders, a strategic decision made by the other church leaders. They knew that Calvin's business savvy and financial contributions would help with some of the ongoing needs of the congregation. The building needed some renovations and repairs. Well, Calvin felt needed and enjoyed his involvement with the church. Over the summer months, Calvin noticed a few new water stains on the ceiling in the sanctuary. The 20-year shingles on the roof were now in their 26th year. Calvin and others felt like it would be important to begin the needed church renovations by putting a new roof on before the winter snows came in late November or early December. Others soon rallied around the idea, and Calvin made a very exciting and generous offer. He promised to pay for half of the roof if the church members would raise the rest. 
The only stipulation was that the money had to be raised in just six weeks. The small congregation was swept up by the challenge. A special offering was collected. A yard sale was planned, and after every Sunday service, the ladies of the church sponsored a bake sale. The money began to appear, and at the end of the first four weeks, almost 85% had been raised. Calvin was delighted that his challenge was going to be met and that the roof repair was going to happen. A local roofing company won the contract, and by the 1st of October, scaffolding, plywood, and packets of shingles began to fill the church parking lot. It was decided by the church leadership that as long as the scaffolding was going to be erected around the steeple, that it would be a good opportunity to paint the steeple, repair some of the brickwork that had been damaged by so many years of wind, rain, snow, and the cold temperatures. Calvin added a trip to the church as a part of his daily routine. After finishing breakfast at Maddie's, he would walk the short distance to the church. He spoke to the foreman of the roofing company about the progress, the grade of shingles, the progress made, etc. Calvin liked the sight of the scaffolding around the steeple. It looked like progress. It conveyed a message to the community that the old church was coming to life again. One day, the foreman asked Calvin if he would like an up-close view of the work. After donning a hard hat, Calvin followed the foreman up the metallic stairs of the scaffolding. Once at the top, Calvin found the view to be fascinating. He could see the whole community, the buildings of downtown, the school, the community center, the library. He snapped a few pictures with his phone and was excited about sharing them with Sarah. As he carefully walked about the scaffolding, he peered into the latticework of the belfry. Through the slats, he could see the old dust-covered bell, the one that hadn't played a note in nearly 20 years. There were bird nests and spider webs and layers of dust. The foreman made the comment, It's a shame about the old bell. I miss hearing it ring across the town. It was a special part of Christmas morning when I was a kid. When I heard the bell, I knew it was time to jump out of bed and see what presents were under the tree. Yeah, I remember that as well, said Calvin. I guess the children of town will never know that feeling. And then it hit him. Why had the thought not entered his mind long before? He looked at the foreman and asked, how much weight do you think the scaffolding can hold? And what's the lifting power of the crane you're using to haul up the shingles? The foreman thought it was an odd but interesting question. He replied, the scaffolding can hold several tons of weight. It has to be rated for that amount according to OSHA standards. And the crane? Well, it's heavy duty. It could pick up a Mack truck if it had to. Calvin said, so in theory, it could pick up something that weighs about 2,000 pounds? Oh, easy, said the foreman. What are you getting around to? Can you keep a secret, asked Calvin. The foreman nodded. What if the bell could ring again, said Calvin? What if the children could hear it ring this Christmas morning? Well, that would be great, said the foreman, but that old bell's a goner. The clapper is fused to the side of the bell. It can't be fixed. How are you going to find a bell around here? Where would you even get one? It would probably take months to order a new one and have it shipped stateside. It's a great idea, and the equipment is certainly here, but I don't know any way to make it happen. Calvin thought for a moment and said, Like I asked you a minute ago, can you keep a really good secret? Calvin began to tell him about the old bell in the corner of the foundry that his grandfather and great-grandfather had once forged. He told him that it could be used, that it would make his entire family proud to hear it ring from the church steeple. 
the two men agreed to keep the idea a complete secret and to meet in the morning at the coffee shop once both had had a night to sleep on the idea. Two men met at Maddie's the following morning around 8 a.m. Both were so excited they kept interrupting each other with ideas. The foreman brought some handwritten drawings of the opening that would be created when the lattice work was removed. He talked about how the old bell could be swung out of the steeple. Both were giddy with excitement. Let's keep it a secret from the townspeople, even the church members. Let's surprise them on Christmas morning, said Calvin. The two began to scheme about the logistics. And who are the limited number of people who would have to know about the project? I'll have to let my brother in on it. He's the manager of the foundry. He'll have to know. In fact, he can be great help. It's going to take some effort to get the new bell out of the old building and onto a truck. The foreman chimed in, and I'm going to need to tell my crane guy and a couple of other workers, but I think we can do it with just five or six others helping us. They planned the whole process. The work would be done, the work would be done in the secrecy of night, if at all possible. They allow themselves two nights to extract the old bell, another night to remove the new bell from the foundry and place it on the truck. A fourth night would be needed to hoist it into place and make it secure. Two more nights were added for good measure and dates were placed on the calendar. Both men agreed to gather the team for a planning meeting. They promised to meet after supper the following night in the church's counseling room. The team gathered with the stealth of a clandestine mission. Great ideas were discussed, plans were made, and a strategy came into being. All promised to keep the secret and were excited to be a part of the big Christmas surprise. Calendars were cleared, materials were gathered, and the plan was put into place. The night of the bell extraction went off without a hitch. The night was dark and cloudy, but still and quiet. The cover of darkness would help maintain the secret mission. It took three men only about 20 minutes to remove the latticework and to gain access to the bell chamber. After taking some measurements and rigging a few ropes and pulleys, the old bell was lifted from its century-old resting place. The rafters above the bell creaked when the weight of the bell was suspended by some ropes. The crane operator was able to position the crane in such a way that the hook on the crane could be attached to the bell as it hung in place by the ropes. With a careful dance of men, ropes, and pulleys, the bell was eased away from the steeple and hung just to the side of the building, suspended some 150 feet above the ground. The crane operator gently lowered it onto the back of an awaiting flatbed truck. The whole process was completed in less than three hours. following evening, the same team of men met at the foundry. One of the men borrowed a dolly from the local piano shop that could bear the weight of the bell. A path was cleared through the floor of the warehouse, and the piano dolly was placed next to the bell. Five of the men were able to tip the bell slightly to one side so that a wooden 4x4 beam could be placed below one side of the bell. Using a car jack, the other edge of the bell was lifted, and again a beam was placed underneath. A forklift moved into place and gently set the bell onto the dolly. The men then rolled the dolly to the entrance of the foundry, and once again, with the aid of the forklift, 
The bell was placed on the back of the same flatbed truck that had been used the night before. The men covered it with a tarp and parked the truck in a back alley behind the foundry building. Night number two had gone as smooth as silk. Night number three was clear and calm, a bright moon casting a wonderful light across the town of Bradford. At 8 p.m., the team of workers met at the base of the steeple just as the flatbed truck rolled into place. The engine of the crane roared to life and cables were attached to the top of the bell. Ten minutes later, the bell was hoisted to the top of the scaffolding. Reversing the earlier process of extraction and using the same system of ropes and pulleys, the men were able to slowly and carefully maneuver the new bell into place. Adjustments were made to the various fittings and hinges on which the bell swung. Although the process took longer than anticipated, with a lot of ingenuity, sweat, hard work, and a little grace, the new bell rested comfortably in its new setting. The final step was that of tying a new rope to the bell with the other end resting about shoulder level, several stories below, at the landing in the steeple base. Calvin decided to use a nylon rope, hoping the new cord would serve the ringing of the bell for years to come. A big knot was tied at the bottom of the rope, which would allow those who rang the bell to have something on which to grasp. The following day, some of the same workers replaced the latticework and painted the upper portion of the steeple. To most observers, everything looked as it had before. The bell had been replaced, and only a handful of folks knew. By mid-November, the roof project was complete, and all the scaffolding was removed. Christmas decorations were put into place, and the old Westminster church seemed poised to take on another Christmas season. The weeks leading up to Christmas nearly drove Calvin Wilson crazy. In his mind, the days seemed to move so slowly. He was as impatient as a child waiting on Santa to arrive. But the day finally came. Calvin awoke and dressed long before daylight on Christmas morning. Still groggy from her sleep, his wife Sarah stumbled into the kitchen and found Calvin putting on his heavy coat and boots. Where are you headed at this hour, she asked. With a hint of mystery in his voice, he simply said, I've got an errand to run. I've been working on a little Christmas surprise. And with that being said, he raced out the door even before she had a chance to ask any follow-up questions. Calvin quietly drove to the church and parked near the door. And using his key, he opened the door and waited inside. A few minutes later, he heard the sound of a truck pulling up outside. His brother Joseph knocked on the door and Calvin quickly let him inside. There was much to be done in the few minutes before daybreak. The two men turned up the heat and started to warm the sanctuary. Candles were lit on the altar and in the vestibule. Calvin plugged in the Christmas tree. The main aisle was swept and the doors were unlocked. With about five minutes to spare, the men made their way to the steeple landing where the nylon rope gently dangled before their eyes. The first ray of sunlight began to peek over the eastern horizon. Calvin looked at his brother and said, Merry Christmas. And then he said, now let's make sure that everyone knows it's Christmas morning. The two men placed their hands on the rope and gave it a good tug. The bell swung, and the clapper struck the side of the bell, and a most amazing and clear note shattered the silence of the morning. And then another striking of the bell, and then another, and then another. For Calvin, it was glorious, rewarding, and exhilarating. The sound of the bell began to peal across the community, announcing that Christmas morning had come. Sarah had just raised her first cup of coffee to her lips 
as she wondered where her husband could possibly have gone when she heard the ringing of the bell. Surely not, she thought to herself. But then again, who else would be doing such a thing? She filled a thermos with hot coffee, quickly dressed, and headed for Westminster, where she was confident that she would find her husband. People all across the town heard the bell. It can't be, many exclaimed. That bell hasn't rung in 20 years. Mary Jones heard the sound while she was out walking her dog in the early morning light. Bill Carey was shaving at his bathroom sink when it dawned on him what he was hearing. Barbara, the waitress from Maddie's, was just starting to stir when she heard the noise. The mayor of the town stepped out onto his porch to to catch the sound. Pastor Richards listened and wondered if some Christmas miracle had taken place in his little church. Husbands and wives looked at each other with astonishment. Children began to ask questions, dogs started barking, and as if drawn in by some strange and mysterious force, people started heading down to the church. Within a few minutes, the parking lot started to fill. People stood beside their cars and listened to the glad sound of celebration. Others walked up on foot. People started walking into the sanctuary and filling the pews. Soon the place was packed. People hugged and laughed and rejoiced. Finally, the bell stopped ringing and the pastor started leading the congregation and singing all the well-known Christmas carols he could remember. It was a day of celebration, like many had forgotten long ago. There was a mystery to solve and questions to answer. Who fixed the old bell and who was ringing the bell and who opened up the church? But somehow the who, what, and why of that Christmas morning was swallowed up in the pure joy of the moment. As Pastor Richards looked out across the congregation, he saw the Wilson brothers standing together in the back. Their clothes were soaked with sweat as though they had already been at work that morning. The pastor caught Calvin's eye and pointed to the steeple as if to ask, Did you make that happen? With a gleam in his eye and joy written all across his face, Calvin just shrugged and acted like he had no idea. You may or may not hear the sound of bells ringing this Christmas morning, but maybe you should. In fact, the whole earth should rise and join in a chorus of celebration. Bells should peal through the land. Hearts should race. Children should sing. The elderly should dance, the lonely should feel befriended, the fearful should banish their anxiety, the lost should declare their redemption, the broken should find healing, the dying should welcome the embrace of new life, the darkness should flee in the presence of that dawning day. It's Christmas. Make it a day of celebration. Sing and laugh and pray and rejoice. For unto all of us is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So let the earth rejoice and let the bells ring out their glad song.